0: Jesus' name. That's the reason we've come here today. Uh, Take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter number 2. Mark chapter number 2. And uh, we're going to continue our series entitled, It Hurts to Serve. It Hurts to Serve. Chapter 2 is a continuation of the first chapter of the book of Mark. Uh, When we left off last week, Jesus and his followers were uh, in the desert ministering uh, different places. So much so, they had to go to the desert Uh, Because they could not effectively minister in town. Everywhere Jesus went, as you can imagine, uh, a crowd showed up uh, to see different things. And His first public miracles uh, in Capernaum, where we see in Mark chapter number 1, He healed a man of demon possession in the synagogue. Uh, the people had never seen anybody anything like it. They'd never seen anybody speak like him or uh, minister like him. And they would come out in the desert to hear what he had to say. Uh, he was a different kind of leader, a different kind of teacher. And uh, I love uh, in the series, The Chosen, uh, when they talk about, uh, in season number one, they talk about his ministry is different, he looks different, and uh, he looks at one of the disciples and says, get used to different. And I feel like we in our churches today, we need to get used to different. It's okay uh, to come in and praise the Lord and be a little unconventional at times. It's okay to raise up our hands and praise Him and, uh, and get a little out of sorts from time to time. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I appreciate uh, the great spirit thus far. And uh, You might be here this morning or watching even online and uh, you need something different. Maybe you have a need or something that's pressing in your heart and life. Maybe you're in a rut today. Uh, would you consider maybe this morning... That Jesus is what you need. Maybe that Jesus is what you have need of uh, today. Mark chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number 1. And we'll jump right in and won't have you stand for sake of time this morning. Mark chapter 2 and verse number 1 says, And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the impact that it has on our lives. Uh, Lord, thank you for the truth that it is your name that makes the difference. Lord, it is your power, your ability, your word that makes a difference. Uh, Lord, it's not our name. Lord, help us never to be in a place, in a position, a mindset where we think that we have to exalt ourselves for you to do a work. Lord, it's not about what we can do. It has always been about what you can do and what you do on a regular basis. You said in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I will build my church. It's yours. Lord, I ask that you please help us to respond to you today. Lord, if there is someone here that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, please allow today to be their day of salvation where they would realize their spiritual need and they would call out to the Savior to meet that need. Uh, Lord, someone may be here battling a financial need or a marital crisis or a physical ailment. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, I ask that you please help us to see that you are the answer. Lord, please speak to my heart. Cleanse me of sin. Help me to be clean as I preach to your word today. Uh, Preach your word to your people. Lord, we need you this morning. Please speak to our hearts and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you're taking notes, you can write down number one, the recognition. The recognition. Uh, Jesus leaves the desert and comes back into Capernaum. He's based his earthly ministry out of Capernaum after he was forced out of his hometown of Nazareth. We see that in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 verse 58 and it says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. See, Jesus wants to work in and through us, but are we willing to do what he is leading us to do? What are we willing to do to see it take place? Uh, see, it's Easy for us to say, Yeah, I want that, or Yeah, I want to be involved in that, or Yeah, God, use me. But what are we doing to prepare for that? What are we doing to be ready to be used? I can say I want to be used, but that doesn't get anything done. I can say that I want to serve, I can say that I want to minister, but just saying that you're willing to work doesn't accomplish anything. Saying that you want Jesus to use you doesn't get anything done. Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and get busy? Are you ready for that? Period, the recognition. We see uh, the crowd that's mentioned here in the first couple verses of the chapter. Uh, We see that he's back in the house. Now, we're not told whose house, but it is implied whose house this is. In chapter number one, verse 29, the only other house mentioned in this context, remember, uh, chapters and verses were added later after the Word of God was written for our help. So we're still in the context of there is a house mentioned in chapter 1, verse 29. And it says, And forthwith, when they came out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Uh, That'll be a little bit more important in a few verses. But for right now, I want you to think about the fact in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says it was noised that he was in the house. Uh, The Greek word is akuo, And it means to be reported or to be understood. It was clearly understood that Jesus was in this house and because they knew where he was the people were crowded outside of this house. It's amazing to me that every time Jesus is present he always draws a crowd. And how does that translate today? It translates to us today that when we lift him up people take notice. When he is exalted People recognize it. John chapter 12, verse 32. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. We know the significance. He's talking about uh, the way that he would die and he would be raised up from the earth in the crucifixion. But it also gives us a spiritual point and a very significant truth that when he is exalted, when he is lifted up in our lives, people are drawn to that. People see something different. And the desire of our hearts when we come to church or we come to a place of worship and and when we live out our lives should be to lift up the name of Jesus. It's one of the purpose statements of our church right on the wall. And it says to exalt the Savior. That is the purpose of a church. And if we're not exalting Jesus, we're not a church. Because it's His. It's His work. Not our own. But we can simplify that and personalize it this morning. And you can ask, am I lifting up Jesus in my life? Am I exalting Jesus? Because there is an opposite reaction that has to take place for you and I to exalt Jesus. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 in verse 30, it says, He must increase. But what happens, has to happen for that to take place? He said, but I must decrease. See, it's impossible for you and I to lift up Jesus and ourselves at the exact same time. Remember Jesus taught in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 6 and his Sermon on the Mount, and verse 24. He said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. See, it's not possible for you and I to lift up Jesus at the same time we're lifting up ourselves. I want to illustrate that this morning uh, with these big barrels today. And uh, I just, uh, for, for kicks and giggles, one of them says Jesus and the other one says me. Now, let me just illustrate for a moment. If I make, don't make a mess. This is, imagine before you and I came to Christ. Can you all see me? Not the barrel. Uh, can, you, yeah, can you see me? Um, when, when we were without Christ, this was our life. Everything we did was all about us. It was all about lifting up self. It was all about what I could do to make me happy. That's what our life was consumed with. Before Christ, this was our life. But when we chose Jesus and we said, you know what? I don't need the ways of the world anymore. I see that I have a spiritual need and I am not going to be able to meet that need without an intervention. And I need Jesus. We set ourselves down so that we could choose Jesus. All right? So simple, right? But here's the problem. After Jesus, there is a great fight that takes place in our lives. Because we can choose to lift up Jesus in everything that we say and do. In our actions, our attitude, our behavior, our lifestyle. We can choose to lift up Jesus. But how many times do we say, you know what? Sunday's over. It's Monday now. And now it's me time. And this week is all about how can I make me happy. It's the pursuit of all of the things of the world. It's how can I uh, help my 401K? How can I help my retirement? How can I uh, live my life? How can I not uh, hurt somebody's feelings at work and talk about Jesus too much and make people uncomfortable when I'm around them? Uh, How can I do all of those things? Because my life has become about me and not about Jesus. We all know that, and this is heavy, uh, we uh, we all know that the life that, Points people to Jesus is not a me filled life. It's a Jesus filled life. It's a life that exalts Him above myself. Because when I insult Jesus, not only am I making that choice, but it changes my attitude. When I exalt Jesus, I'm saying, you know what, I'm gonna get up to today or get up tomorrow morning and I'm gonna spend time in the Word of God and I'm gonna draw close to Him and I'm gonna spend time in prayer with Him and I'm gonna tell somebody about Him. And when I come to church, I'm gonna be engaged and I'm gonna be uh, following the Scripture and I'm gonna make sure that I'm ready to respond to whatever God says to me because my life is all about Jesus now and I'm exalting Him in my life. And it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And when I go to work tomorrow, my coworkers are gonna know that Jesus fills my life and He's my priority, and I'm going to put him first in everything that I do. And when I come home at work, I'm going to love on my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And I'm going to show the love of Christ to my kids, and I'm not going to yell at them, and I'm not going to put them down, and I'm not going to embarrass them, but I'm going to fill my home with the things of God, and I'm going to live like him this week. When your life is all about Jesus, and we exalt him, and we lift him up, people take notice. Why did people come to the house? Because Jesus was there. Jesus was exalted there. Jesus was the focal point there. And how many times do we live our life where he's not the focal point? See, the great thing about this illustration is, man, I can pick up Jesus and I can make him my life, but that means to pick up him, I have to make a choice that I'm not going to lift up me. I'm not going to exalt me. And instead of Getting up tomorrow morning and saying, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I know I could sleep in. And I know that that would make me feel good. But I need time with Jesus. I need Him. Uh, you know what, I know prayer time takes time, but you know, I'm, I'm going to prioritize it. I know that Sunday is a day of rest, and man, I could take a day off, and I could do all kinds of things. And I could work in the yard, because all, all of us know that our yards need it. And all of these different things I could do, but I'm going to exalt Jesus. See, when I pick him up, I have to set me down. And I can't hold on to two at the same time. I can't hold two barrels at the same time. I can't lift up both of us at the same time. I have to make a choice. Our life will be about you, me, or Jesus. How we live our life tells the picture of who we're exalting. Which one is it? Not only do we see... The choice or the crowd, we see the challenge. Look at verse number three, and they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, and he, and, and was which was born of four. And when they could not come unto him, come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Imagine bringing someone to see Jesus, you've traveled all this way to discover that you can't even get close. Their cries and a request to get to him were met with overwhelming denial. And they come all this way, exerted all this energy. And they had overcome their fleshly desire to give up. And this guy's heavy. We're carrying him. All of those things only to be rejected at the door. No. Not good enough. Uh, We came here to see Jesus and we're not leaving without an encounter. And Maybe you come in and you're looking outside. You're standing on the outside looking in and saying, how close can I get? Can I get to Jesus? Can I be near him? Because maybe you're in need of the miracle, but what are you and I willing to do to get it? How much are we willing to do? These friends all conceived this plan to remove the roof. And we might think of this as a small task, but let me give you a little bit of background. William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary gave this analogy about this passage. He said the typical Syrian roof was constructed of timbers laid parallel to each other, about two or three feet apart. Then, crosswise over the timbers, sticks were laid close to each other, thus forming the basic roof. Upon this was laid reeds, branches of trees, and thistles. The whole thing was overlaid with about a foot of earth, which was then packed down to resist water. All told, the roof was about two feet thick, so much so that during the springtime, grass would flourish. On these primitive roofs. So imagine two feet worth of dirt on top of your roof. And then me standing underneath it when people start digging through it. Now, they refused to take no for an answer. Do you know why most people don't ever see God do something miraculous in their lives? Because they give up too easy. You know why we don't see a move of God in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our nation? Because we give up too easy. We want to follow God our way, not His way. We want it to be easy and comfortable. And I don't see anywhere where Jesus tells us that the Christian life is a comfortable one. Carrying a cross is never meant to be enjoyed. Not something that we're going to have fun doing. Now, following Jesus is fun. There are moments when it's exciting and joyful and praiseworthy. But every day isn't like that. How do you know that's the truth? There are some days where it's hard. It's difficult. And the world makes it even more difficult. They come to the house for a miracle. They see the crowd. But they didn't turn around and go home. If these friends would have had that attitude, their friend would have died crippled. But they were unwilling to leave without an encounter with Jesus. Are you unwilling today to leave without seeing Him? Hey, are you saying, I am not leaving here without Jesus passing by my way? Uh, The word here for the press in verse number 4, they could not come nigh unto Him for the press. It means a multitude of people. It's not the first time this phrase is mentioned in the Bible either. In Luke chapter 19, verse 3, Zacchaeus, remember the wee little man, came to see Jesus. And it says, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. In Luke chapter 19, verse 3. What did he do? He climbed a tree. He got active. He climbed a tree. Remember in Mark chapter 5, verse 27, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched the garment. She came into the press. She was willing to press her way through the crowd. This weak woman with an issue of blood was willing to be uncomfortable to get through the press. What are we willing to do to get to Jesus? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? It might take you doing something crazy, unconventional, unnatural, getting out of your comfort zone. But how desperate are you to see Jesus? You know, Pastor, I I don't want somebody to laugh at me or uh, to criticize me or make fun of me. Remember the blind man in Luke chapter 18 as Jesus is passing through Jericho? For the last time, by the way. never pass through Jericho ever again after that. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 39, this blind man starts crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Starts crying out. Heard that it was Jesus. Heard who he was. Knew that he was the healer. And starts crying out. In verse number 39, it says, And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. Hey, shh, 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 you'll bother him. Aren't we glad that Jesus is never bothered by us? Hey, you'll bother him. Shh. Uh, probably the disciples, because they were known for that. Hey, get your little kids away from Jesus. It'll bother him. Remember Jesus rebuked the disciples. Hey, suffer the little children coming to me, forbid them not. Right here, what happens? The blind man gets, oh, oh I'm sorry. No, he doesn't do that. What does it say? But he cried so much the more. When people said, shh, 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 He got louder louder more active more involved so much so that the crowd stops and Jesus addresses a need hey are you that person going shh, shh hey i'm trying to worship over here shh and you stifle a brother or sister in christ are you that person who looks down and gives that dirty look don't you raise your hand in church we're not supposed to do that don't you say amen we don't do that here if, you're, if that's your mentality, you are sitting in the wrong church. So think about where we are. Are you and I willing to cry out even more for him? Uh, this blind man didn't let others stop him. Uh, how bad do we need Jesus? Uh, but consider not those who are on the outside of the house. Let's consider for a moment those who are on the inside of the house. Because the Bible doesn't make it very clear, but let's assume that we know whose house this is. Let's assume just for a moment that it was the house from chapter number one. That this is the same house from chapter number one. That this is the home of a very famous disciple. What was Simon Peter known for? Simon was that guy who spoke first and thought about it later. He identifies with so many of us. But what did he do? If this was Peter's house. How many words does Peter say here in the text? Zero. What is Peter's response? Looking up, seeing someone breaking through his roof. Silence. That is not Peter's M.O. That is not Peter's style. Why? Why did he not say anything? What made the difference? It comes back to verse number one. Who is in the house? Jesus is in the house. See, when Jesus comes into your house, things are different than ever before. When Jesus comes into your house, you don't say things that you used to. You don't think things that you used to. You don't live the way that you used to. You don't act the way you used to because of who is in your house. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? He's living and breathing in you. Has Jesus come into your house? Is He living and flowing through you? Has He made a drastic change in you? See, there was a crowd there. Uh, There was a challenge there. But then, thirdly this morning, there was confirmation there. Look at verse number 5. They let this man down. And in the crowd, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, amazing that Jesus speaks to this man. He could have said, hey, wait your turn. He could have said, I'm sorry, we don't take people who come through that way. you got to come through the door. Uh, It would have made sense, you know, come through the door. Uh, But he addressed this man. But what's interesting is at verse number 6, in a crowded, standing room-only place, there were some people who weren't standing. Did you notice that? Look at verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there. Sitting there. In a crowd of standing room only, there were some seats that were occupied. The only purpose that these people had was to look for something to criticize. Instead of love for this man's condition, there was a lack of compassion. Instead of faith, they were looking for fault. But imagine the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now here's a paralytic man who comes down and Jesus doesn't even address the paralysis first. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is either the most heartless thing that Jesus has ever done or it's the best thing that he could do. Remember in verse 2, standing room only, this is the fire marshal's worst nightmare, okay? And Jesus gave them what this man needed. He preached to them. This crowd, he didn't say, I'm going to heal you, heal you, heal you, not you, heal heal you, heal you, heal you. No, it says in verse number 2, he preached to them. He gave them what they needed. This man comes down in the midst of them, and what does he do? He doesn't heal first, he says, Your sins are forgiven. He addresses the most important need first. Warren Wiersbe said, Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Jesus addressed the greatest need first. Is there a need in your life that you feel like you don't need? Do you have something going on where you say, man, my life would be so much better without filling the blank. My life would be so much better if I didn't have this going on. Uh, Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a problem in your relationship. But you feel that you would be better off without this. What if God says that you do need it? What if God looked at your life and said, you're going through that because I know you need it. Remember the Apostle Paul? Qu- quite honestly, the greatest Christian example we have in, in the Bible. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7? And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to hold me back. To press on me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing, verse 8, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Paul says, hey, I've got this problem, this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Uh, this thing that I deal with every day of my life. And I asked the Lord three different times. God, I could be so much more effective if you would take this away. God, I could do more for you if you would release this. God, I could be more involved and more connected and I could do more for you if you would just take this away. But what is God's response? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Hey, this problem, Paul, get used to it. And live with my grace. See, Paul looked at his struggle And said that he could be more useful for Christ without the problem. But God looked at the problem and said Paul would be more humble with the problem. Which leads me to a question. It's in your notes and it'll be on the screen. Could it be that God is more concerned with your level of humility than how useful you think you may be to Him? Is God more concerned with your level and my level of humility than He is concerned with how useful you think you may be to Him? See, it doesn't matter what you need today. Jesus always addresses your greatest need first. First. Maybe that need is to draw closer to Him. Maybe that need is to settle a relationship with someone else. And maybe that need is that you would turn your eyes to him and you would uh, mention him and acknowledge who he is in your life. But what is your greatest need? What's your heart like in the storm? What's he trying to get you to see? These religious leaders did not consort with each other. It says in verse number 7, They were sitting there, reasoned in their hearts, and said, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? They all had the same thought. Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, the fact that they all had the same thought is impressive enough. But the fact that Jesus knew their thoughts is even more impressive. It says, And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thy house. Jesus knew their thoughts, knew what they were thinking. And just a reminder, he hasn't changed. He still knows our thoughts. That's Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Neither is there any creature that's not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. David said in Psalm 139, 1 through 6, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain unto it. Jesus knew their thoughts and brought them to light. How would you feel if people knew what you were thinking? Oh, pastor, that's another session altogether. You know, what we were thinking. But Jesus asked a very simple question. Which is easier? Is it easier for me to forgive this man's sins? Or is it easier for me to heal him physically? See, the physical healing... Would verify the spiritual healing. Jesus healed the outside to prove that he could heal the inside. Now, think about this what has the Lord done in your life to show you that he's working in your heart? How has the Lord worked in your life to show that he's working in your heart? Because he works in both, not just one. He doesn't just work in our hearts without affecting our life. He doesn't just work in our lives without affecting our heart. He works on both. So what has God done? J.C. Ryle said, Genuine sanctification is a thing that can be seen. The process of God working in my heart and my life, conforming me to the image of His Son, can be seen on the outside. But how often do we complain about how He's working on the outside? I don't like this problem. I don't like this trial. God, remove it like Paul. Hey, just take it away. God, change it. But why not instead, God, what are you trying to teach me through it? What are you trying to show me? See, we're creatures of habit. We like the familiar. We like the comfortable. We like what's, what's coming, at, knowing what's coming ahead. and uh, We're not adept to change. All those things. But God prepares us for change by saying two words. Trust me. He prepares us for change by saying two words, trust me. Because if we trust him, we can go through anything. I don't have to know what tomorrow holds as long as I know the one who holds tomorrow. See, he says, I'm going to prepare you for change by two words, trust me. Do you trust him today? Do you trust Him to lead you? Can you prepare for change by trusting Him that He knows what's best? Follow-up question. Has He ever given you a reason to doubt His goodness? Has He ever given you a reason to doubt that He's not going to be faithful, that He's not going to be true, that He's going to be right, that He's going to be good? He's never given us that reason. Can you praise Him in the middle of your circumstances knowing that He is working even if you don't see it right now? Even if you don't know it. See, there's no one like him, but can you praise him for who he is? Even if he doesn't heal you, even if he doesn't answer your prayer the way you want, even if he doesn't fix that relationship, even if he doesn't work the way that you desire, can you praise him? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as Though some strange thing happen unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Hardships and joy. Those two don't seem like they go together. But yet, the Bible tells us that we can have joy in the middle of those hardships. We don't have to be happy and, man, I can't wait to suffer for Jesus. That person has a problem. But I can't wait to see what God's going to do through the suffering. I can't wait to see how God is going to use this to mold me into his image. I can't wait to see how God is going to speak to someone else's heart through what I'm going through. See, the paralytic man went home that day, verse number 12, totally different. Then when he got there, it says, And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went before them them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I ain't never seen nothing like that before. I've never seen that happen before. I've never seen something like that. That's what they were saying. But here's the thing. He was healed physically and spiritually because he believed that Jesus could do what others could not. Have you brought a need with you to church today? Have you brought a burden to church with you today? See, at sometimes following Jesus hurts. It hurts at times to trust in Jesus. hurts to lay our burdens down because it requires faith. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. But are you desperate enough to trust Him as your only hope? Are you desperate enough to trust Him even though you might not see it now? But are you desperate enough? Oh, pastor, I got it. That's a problem. Hey, remember, I got it, pastor. I don't need any help. I'm good. You're trusting you. When I say, I'm good, Pastor, I, I got this. Hey, you're trusting you. You're going to be limited in what you can do. But wouldn't it be better to trust the one who has no limits? Wouldn't it be better to trust the one who's not hindered? Wouldn't it be the one, better to trust the one who can do what we can't do? Wouldn't it be better to simply trust him to do what he's so good at doing? Oh, Pastor, does that mean that God's going to do what I'm asking? Maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But I can promise you this. This life is filled with all kind of anxiety when I trust me because as Clint Eastwood said man's got to know his limitations. We know what we can do. Great philosopher, that Eastwood guy. We know what we can do. There's no telling what he can do. And when I come to him, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. When I come to him and say, God, I I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to heal. I don't know how you're going to answer. I don't know how you're going to whatever. But God, I... I can trust you because you've never given me a reason not to. You've always been faithful. You've always been good. You've always been kind. And he is not getting ready to stop being those things now. God is not sitting in heaven, popping rollades and twiddling his thumbs, pulling out hair, wondering about what's going on in the United States of America. He's above all that. He's above all that. Which means that we're beneath Him. And yet He still chooses to be good to us. He still chooses, in spite of us, to be good to us. But can you lean back and simply trust that He's going to be who He's always been? He's going to be good. He's going to be faithful. He's going to be true. He's going to be right. But can you trust that? Well, Pastor, my problem is way big. Well, hey, your God is way bigger. Way bigger. He's bigger than anything. But can you trust Him? Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with that thing of trust. Maybe you're here today and you've not come to Him as Savior and Lord. Maybe He's not your Savior. You've never taken that step by calling out to Him for salvation. Maybe that's your need today. Maybe your need is more practical, more tangible. Pastor, I have a health need. I have a financial need. I have a relationship problem. I have a marriage problem. Whatever it is. I have a problem with kids. My children are away. Whatever. But could you trust Him? Hey, we've trusted Him this far and he's been faithful. He's been good. But can you continue to trust him? Maybe you're here and you're lost. You don't know Jesus is your personal savior. Can I challenge you today that he is good and he is trustworthy. Always has been, always will be. But have you placed your faith in him? You and I know that we have a need. We're all sinners. We're worthless in the sight of God. We're not perfect. And He is everything. He is perfect, holy, just, righteous. And that just and holy, righteous God died on the cross for us. He sent Jesus, the Son of God, to be our Savior. And He died so that we wouldn't have to. And all we have to do is reach out to Him and call on Him for salvation. And He will extend that answer. He will answer that prayer. But have you called on Him? Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He gave us his word. He gave us a promise that if we call on him, he will answer and he will provide salvation. Have you done that? Has there been a time in your life when you've placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, maybe today's your day. Today is the day where you trust Jesus to be your Savior. If you're going through something else, maybe you've already placed your faith in Christ. Hey, pastor, I've already done that. I've already settled that and maybe you're struggling, would you let him know that? And by the way, he already knows. But would you confess that to him and simply trust him to be the answer? Maybe you're lifting up. Your life is filled with lifting up you. The emphasis and focus of your life is exalting yourself and not Jesus. Would you make a decision today that that changes? Today, I'm going to exalt Jesus. I'm going to set myself down. I'm going to decrease who I am, and I'm going to lift him up. Plain and simple. Would you speak to the Lord today about what he's spoken to you about? Our personal workers are moving, and they're coming to get in place right now. and They'll be here to pray with you if you need someone to pray with. We'd be honored to pray with you and help you in whatever you may need this morning. Father, please bless as only you can. Lord, your word has been spoken today. Lord, I ask that you please help us to respond appropriately. Help us to answer the call, Lord, whether it's a step of salvation, whether it's taking a step of baptism, whether it's joining local church, whether it's discipleship, growing in you, or service, whatever that may look like. Lord, help us to do what you're dealing with our hearts to do. Lord, please help us to take a step today in your direction. Lord, please do a work in our hearts and help us to reach spiritual victory, achieve spiritual victory today through your word through you. Lord, we love you. and Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us, please. We're going to sing that song we sang.